0: This, 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 this is K- you. T. K-U-T. KUT Austin. Stop. This
1: is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of February 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week How do Austin's Capitol View corridors preserve sites? of the Texas Capitol.
2: Why do some get approved and some not get approved? And
3: what does it mean to be in a view corridor? How
1: private prisons have fared under President Trump.
3: The Trump administration has really been a godsend for the industry. And the
1: Austin Film Society training children to direct their own stories.
3: It was hard work because a lot of the
0: kids weren't doing the roles, so it was hard.
1: (laughs) Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend.
0: Members of Congress... I have
4: the high privilege and the distinct honor of of presenting to you the President of the United States.
1: That's U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan introducing President Trump for his State of the Union address this week. You probably heard the speech or parts of it. We had it live on KUT and it was, I mean, it's carried everywhere. But what you may not have heard is what your local member of Congress had to say about it. Austin is one of those weird, heavily gerrymandered cities where we have six congressional districts that include some part of the city, five Republicans and one Democrat. So here's a reaction to the State of the Union from Republican Congress member John Carter.
5: We hear we've heard rhetoric after rhetoric, giveaway program after giveaway program that didn't work. But the president said, no, let's put the money back in the pockets of the American people. Let's make things fairer. Let's get government out of the way. And that's what he talked about, what he's done. He's cut regulations. He's given us a tax bill that is going to put money in every American's pocket so that they can buy the things that we care about, like things for our children, vacations for our families, education for our young people, all these things that we can make our choices, not the government make those choices for us.
1: And Republican Roger Williams.
5: I've always said the federal government should do three things, collect our taxes, defend our borders, help us with infrastructure, and then get out of the way. Right now our economy is booming and the president has acknowledged the need to fix our nation's infrastructure. He is committed to rebuilding our military and I believe we are on the right path to being stronger than ever before. Our country needs a common-sense business approach to government, and I am committed to working on an agenda that will benefit all Americans.
1: That was pretty much the theme from local Republican members of Congress, emphasizing the tax cut bill and the economy. Representative Michael McCall, who's also a Republican and chairs of the Homeland Security Committee, issued a statement saying he shares the president's vision of more border security and a policy of, quote, peace through strength. Now, here's Representative Lloyd Doggett, the lone Democrat representing part of Boston.
5: Well, what a difference between uh, teleprompter Trump and Trump the big tweet. Uh, It uh, was just amazing to uh, hear him talk about uh, love and unity and one big family when uh, hardly a day goes by that he's not attacking and insulting someone, including many of the people I represent in Central Texas. Uh, It was notable that he continues to refer to dreamers, not as the tremendous young people they are, but to refer to them as illegal aliens. These people have so much to offer, and to contrast them or suggest immigration or the uh, or some of the criminal gangs in Central America makes no sense at all. The next big state of
1: the something speech to happen for Austin will be the state of the city speech delivered by Austin Mayor Steve Adler. That's coming up on Tuesday, February the 20th at 6 p.m. You can go to it if you want. You can reserve tickets or you can watch it on the city's TV channel, which is also streamed online, ATXN.TV, and then click on live. So that's February the 20th. You have time to clear your calendar for the state of the city speech. One of the major issues that Mayor Adler has tried to prioritize is attacking institutional racism. And as we begin Black History Month, KUT's Audrey McGlinchey reports on how the city of Austin's equity office is considering how to further its conversations on race relations.
2: In 2016, Austin Mayor Steve Adler convened a task force to study racism. He called it the Task Force on Institutional Racism and Systemic Inequities. Six months later, that task force came out with more than 200 recommendations on how policies in housing, education, and finance disproportionately affect people of color. But what did the city do with those 200 recommendations? Brian Oaks is the city's chief equity officer.
6: We sent out the, the report to all of our city departments and uh, requested that uh, they actually review and, uh, and read the report and then also to respond back to us.
2: All city departments responded, listing recommendations that seemed doable. For example, training around racial inequities for city staff. The city's already doing that, but they're going to take it a step further now.
6: We've actually hired a business process consultant uh, who's working to help us develop and design what we call uh, our equity training academy for the city.
2: And then there are recommendations the city's still considering, like an education campaign.
6: To educate on segregation uh, and fair housing issues.
2: And a marketing campaign.
6: We are Austin, a great place uh, to live, work, uh, and play for Asian, Black, Latino, uh, and American Indians, showcasing cultural, spiritual, and community assets.
2: Tuesday's conversation was just a briefing, so council members took no action. But Mayor Adler said he hopes there's money in the budget down the road to build the city's new equity office, with the hopes that they'll have more capacity to take on the recommendations of reports like these. Audrey McGlynn-Shee, KUT News.
1: Now, it's supposed to be a decent weekend weather-wise, but the drought in this state keeps getting worse. KUT's Moe's has the latest reading from the U.S. Drought Monitor. Nearly the entire state is abnormally dry, with over half of Texas in moderate drought and over 20% in extreme drought, according to the new drought map. Most of the worst conditions are around the panhandle. Richard Heim is the meteorologist who produced the map for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says the dryness will hurt agriculture there, especially because deeper levels of soil in the panhandle haven't recovered from Texas's last big drought.
7: It's, it's going to kind of erase the recovery layers of moisture in the ground, and you're back to a deep layer of, gosh, no moisture in the, in the, in the soil. And you're going to have drought come back really fast, really severe, Texas
1: AgriLife Extension Service says the dryness has also brought wildfire season early to much of the state. Mose Bouchel, KUT News. Thousands of Austin water customers will be getting a credit on their upcoming bill. As KUT's Trey Schauer reports, it's after the
7: discovery of a problem with some late summer meter readings. Austin Energy says it's still investigating what happened. More than 7,000 customers had unusually low water charges last August and then charges that were too high the following month. The anomaly was first reported in October by the Austin American Statesman. In an apology today from Austin Energy General Manager Jackie Sargent, she says the utility quote, should have found this faster and we should have found it ourselves, end quote. She says the problem was concentrated on 135 of more than 1,000 meter reading routes and during a time when the city was transitioning between meter reading companies. Among the changes being made, meter readers are now photographing each reading. Affected customers can expect a credit averaging about $20 on an upcoming bill. Trey Shar KUT News.
1: You ever check out the Hope Outdoor Gallery on Castle Hill? It's been around almost seven years. People sometimes call it Austin's Graffiti Park. It's going to be demolished, and part of it relocated. KUT's D'Elia Jones went to the park to get some reaction.
6: I'm disappointed. You know, it's a lot of memories. Derek Dela Cruz is an artist and an Austin native. He's at the park three to four times a month, and he's been going there since the unfinished development became a temporary art project. Wherever they do, take it. I just hopefully they do a good job with it. And that's what Hope Events, a local nonprofit that oversees the park, says that they're planning to do. The outdoor gallery will be relocated to Carson Creek Ranch near the airport. The new location will provide extended walls for painting, daily open hours for the public, our classes for both adults and kids, and more parking. The Cruz says the move is a tad bit inconvenient, but there may be hope for the new Hope Outdoor Gallery. I have tons of places to paint, but I'm This was more of just a legal place, but I will check it out and see how I feel about it, you know. The relocation project will begin construction this year and will be paid for with public and private money. Dalia Jones, KUT News.
1: You know when you drive down I-35 through downtown Austin and you catch that view of the state capitol? kind of grabs your attention. That is actually intentional. That is a protected view of the capitol. There's a bunch of them. They're called capitol view corridors. They prevent buildings from being constructed that would block the view. So you might wonder, what are these corridors? How do they work? Why do they only exist in certain parts of the city and not others? For our latest installment of our AT Explained series... KUT's Saida Hassan takes a look.
8: About seven years ago, Lynn Meredith and her husband moved into a high-rise downtown. She can see the state capitol from her building, and over the years, she's watched as new skyscrapers have sprung up around the capitol, while some other
2: construction plans have fallen through. Since we are downtown residents and we are interested in our views as well as our new skyline, it was just a question of... Why do some get approved and some not get approved? And what does it mean to be in a view corridor of the Capitol building? So, Meredith wrote in a question to AT Explained: What is a Capitol view corridor? Why don't we have height restrictions on buildings in other parts of Austin? Well, those view
8: corridors exist thanks to action taken by the state of Texas and the city of Austin more than 30 years ago. But before we get to that, let's go over a little Capitol history. Construction on the Texas State Capitol was completed in 1888. Its exterior was built of red granite from Burnett County, the walls inside made of Texas limestone. The Goddess of Liberty statue was placed at the top of the Capitol dome. At the time, it was the tallest building in town. When it was dedicated, crowds of Texans lined Congress Avenue to get a glimpse of the completed Capitol. But of course, Austin looked a lot different in the late 1800s. Decades later, new buildings changed the makeup of the city's skyline. Some residents worried that views of the Capitol would be lost to a growing concrete jungle. In the 1960s, the 26-story Westgate Tower was built near the Capitol grounds. It was significantly taller than any other apartment building in town. The project sparked controversy and eventually led to the adoption of the Capitol View Corridors. In 1983, Congressman Lloyd Doggett, who was then a state senator, wrote the bill to protect views of the Capitol.
5: In a much smaller town uh, in the 80s, we recognized there was a problem here. I think we can never envision how much Austin would grow and how tall these buildings would become around it. But I'm glad we laid a good foundation, uh, not only for the city's future development, but for the preservation of something that's very important.
8: Around the same time, the city of Austin enacted similar regulations. Together, the city and state rules aim to preserve the statehouse's visibility by limiting the height of other buildings within a corridor.
7: Basically, a Capitol View corridor is it's a plane that extends from a defined viewpoint or points uh, that extends to the base of the Capitol Dome.
8: That's Anaya Johnson with Austin's Development Services Department. If we count all of the views protected by both the city and the state, there are 35 Capitol View corridors today. I asked Johnson the second part of Lynn Meredith's question, why these height restrictions exist in some parts of the city but not others. He says there are a lot of factors that shape those decisions. For example, is a particular view only accessible to pedestrians or drivers? Does the view of the capital stretch on or is it just a passing glimpse?
7: So there are those little nuances with each of the different corridors.
8: If you look at a map of Austin's Capitol View corridors, you'll notice that some, like the UT South Mall corridor, stop after just a few city blocks, while others stretch on for miles.
1: So, for instance, there's one corridor that's extremely long that goes out to the 360 Bridge.
8: Scott Grantham is with Austin's Planning and Zoning Department.
1: At some point, council determined that that was a valuable corridor. So therefore, it was adopted.
8: And that conversation didn't stop in the 80s. Just last year, Austin City Council member Ora Houston proposed adding five new corridors, protecting views from East Austin. Grantham says the feasibility of those new corridors is still being reviewed. It's an issue local preservationists are watching closely.
7: It's interesting because most of the discussion has not been about adding more. It's been about restricting them. And of course, we've, we've worked to, to preserve what we have.
8: John Denisi is on the board of the nonprofit Preservation Austin. The group has been active around keeping the Capitol View corridors.
7: And we're not the only city that has some sort of protections in place.
8: He's right. Washington D.C. protects views of the U.S. Capitol. Denver, Colorado's view planes preserve the visibility of the Rocky Mountains. Denisi says rather than prohibiting development, Austin's height restrictions have driven construction to other parts of downtown outside the view corridors.
7: The way that the view corridors have been structured in Austin is really an elegant solution to this vexing problem. It has allowed for full and robust development in certain places where we want it to be. But it's also preserved these really iconic and special views of the Capitol.
8: There have been a few exceptions granted, but mostly developers have to find ways to work around the height limits that affect some of the city's hottest real estate.
6: When you look at a lot of the buildings and landmarks throughout Austin and it it definitely uh, forces architects I think to be a little creative.
8: Jeffrey Tawawa is with the Real Estate Council of Austin. He says determining whether or not a development falls within a corridor is pretty simple but it's led to some strange design trends.
6: Especially our main corridors like Congress Avenue um, or or Lamar you'll see a, a number of buildings that that kind of look a little out of shape, if you will, and, and, uh, uh, you know, definitely looks like that they had to make some adjustments. And one of them to come to mind is like the IBC Bank building right there at 9th and Congress.
8: Essentially, the corridors have led to a lot of oddly shaped buildings in the heart of downtown. It's not uncommon to see one half of a building stop after just a few stories, while the other half, unencumbered by view corridors, is a towering skyscraper. I brought my findings back to our question asker, Lynn Meredith. She says as much as the city and state governments tend to clash, she was surprised to learn that they'd struck a sort of compromise around this issue.
2: I had no idea. And having a view of the Capitol from everywhere in our city is is such a magnificent thing. And um, I'm glad that there are some protections for view corridors. Saida Hassan, KUT News.
1: The first day of early voting for the 2018 primaries is on Tuesday, February 20th, the first business day after President's Day. Can you believe it's that close? Politicians are already laying out promises of what they'll do if they're elected. So we thought we would explain what statewide offices actually do. This time, we're going to look at agriculture commissioner. When the current Texas Constitution was adopted in 1876, the white men who wrote it did not see the need for an elected agriculture commissioner. That was quickly changed. KUT's Ben Philpot has more about the office that promotes one of the state's
7: key industries. Texas agriculture, our crops and our cattle, are known across the country and around the world. The Texas Public Policy Foundation's Bill Peacock says some of that
4: notoriety comes from the efforts of the agriculture commissioner. Kind of a cheerleader or a marketing aspect, right, to to help Texas farmers and, and ranchers market their products.
7: And the cheerleading arm of the office, known as Go Texan, can be seen in grocery stores and TV ads across the state. What is Go Texan? The places we buy the foods
2: we love. Local restaurants, and Texas wines.
7: The campaign is kind of a statewide version of the go local idea. Why buy vegetables from another state when you can pick from that noticeably labeled batch grown right here in Texas? But the office does more than help sell products, it also helps farmers and ranchers successfully grow it. Hugh Brady is a UT Law School professor and heads up the school's legislative lawyering clinic. If you're a farmer or rancher, there's all some kind of critter trying to get in your business, right? If you raise cotton, it's boll weevils. If you've got cows, it's brucellosis. I mean, there's always something threatening agriculture. And so the office was kind of set up to deal with those things. The office is also there to make sure farmers and ranchers aren't overdoing it when it comes to fighting off those pests. Again, Bill Peacock.
4: There's also a regulatory aspect to it, uh, which sometimes they're not quite as happy about, and regulating pesticides uh, and and those types of things to to make sure that, uh, again, there's an environmental aspect to this office as well.
7: Okay, so there are some old school traditional duties of the agriculture commissioner, but the office has gotten a couple of new responsibilities over the last decade that are important, too, starting with the efforts to make school lunches
4: healthier. It's, it's pretty interesting that the largest part of the Ag Department today is its newest and, and this is the nutrition part of it. It now is a funnel for a lot of federal money that provides uh, n- nutrition programs to particularly students and schools and those types of things. And, uh, and, and that's by far dwarfs everything else that the uh, Ag Department does.
7: But Texas is no longer a rural state. In fact, only about 14 percent of our population lives in rural areas. Hugh Brady says rural economies got hammered during the state's economic troubles in the 80s. Oil dropped to six dollars a barrel. So people who had a side income from their mineral rights, you know, didn't have to make as much off of farming. Well, that dropped out. And you had a couple of droughts and Willie Nelson had farm aid, you know, and all that was going on in the 80s. And there just wasn't a whole lot of other than the like farm extension system and things like that. There wasn't a whole lot of support for rural areas. But with a state this big, that's still more than three and a half million Texans living in the countryside. So the legislature created the Office of Rural and Community Affairs to help foster job development and investment in small town Texas. In 2003, the office was swallowed up by the Department of Agriculture. But what about the rest of us that don't raise cattle or live in Marfa? How does the office help us? Well, your refrigerator is probably stocked with plenty of things grown in Texas. But the office has another almost daily contact with Texans that you may not know about. That's the office's role as
4: certifier of weights and measures. They do gas pumps. They do um, weights in, in grocery stores. Anytime the the public is uh, being sold a quantity of something, more than likely the, the scales or, or the measurements that are being used are... Uh, certified by the ag department.
7: So the next time you get a half pound of cheese or a gallon of gas, you have the agriculture commissioner to thank for making sure you're getting what you paid for. Ben Philpott, KUT News.
1: were a country, it would have the fifth highest incarceration rate in the world. More than one of every 1,000 residents in Texas is in prison or jail. That's more than the United States as a whole. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world, higher than second place Cuba, third place Rwanda, and the Russian Federation, which has the fourth highest incarceration rate, according to the nonprofit nonpartisan prison policy initiative. As you can imagine. Keeping all those people behind bars costs a lot of money. States and the federal government have contracted out a lot of that work to private prisons. How have those businesses fared in the first year of the Trump administration, which has vowed a crackdown on crime and illegal immigration? Lauren Brookison is a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Program at NYU School of Law, and she's the author of Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Lauren Brook, thanks for your time.
3: Thank you for having me today.
1: You write in the book how uh, at the end of the Obama administration, they were trying to wind down a little bit some of the use of private prisons, but that changed when Donald Trump was elected president. What happened?
3: It did. And about 18 months ago, it looked like the Obama administration was going to put the private prison industry out of business. Today, the Trump administration has really been a godsend for the industry, despite Republican support for across-the-board budget cuts, the Trump fiscal year 2018 budget calls for an additional $1.2 billion in new spending to increase immigration detention capacity. And that's important because about 65 percent of immigration detention beds are managed and owned by the private prison corporations.
1: How big is the private prison industry in Texas?
3: So the private prison industry certainly has a very large footprint in Texas. There are a lot of immigration detention centers in Texas that are owned and managed by these private prison corporations and specifically this corridor of detention in South Texas from the border all the way up towards Austin. There are a number of immigration detention facilities and most of these are owned and managed by the private prison companies themselves. There's even a family immigration detention center in Dilly, Texas that's owned and managed by CoreCivic. And additionally, the Trump administration has recently posted requests for informations which are really these pre-proposal requests then they're looking for more detention capacity along the southern border in Texas and so the writing is on the wall that there will probably be more private prison immigration detention centers in South Texas than we even have today.
1: Are private prisons run more effectively, more efficiently than than government run prisons?
3: That's a question that the book examines and for the research for the book I spent time in private prisons and private immigration detention centers. And when you walk around these uh, private prisons, they don't really feel that different from a regular prison. But the differences are more subtle. You know, a lot of people may not realize that The private prison industry tends to negotiate their contracts so that they can house an incarcerated population that is cheaper. So people with less medical needs, less mental health needs, less drug treatment needs, for a long period of time they tended to not take anyone who was HIV positive. And that's because those incarcerated people are so expensive to house and take care of. So it is hard to compare the differences between private and public facilities, but a really big difference is the accountability and transparency. Private prisons are not subject to the same accountability and transparency that government prisons are. And at the federal level, the private prison industry is not subject to FOIA, the federal Information Request Act. And at the state level, most states do not require the private prison companies to comply with the same open records requests that the government prisons are required to comply with. And that's really important and something that as we start to rely on the private prison industry more and more under the Trump administration, we really need to be very vigilant about and try to change laws and practices.
1: But to be clear, you're not blaming the private prison industry for the high incarceration rate in America, right?
3: We would have had mass incarceration with or without the private prison industry. Again, we have about 1.5 million people behind bars in state and federal prison, about 700,000 in jails. That doesn't even include the 12 million people who churn in and out of jails. Some of them are the same people who keep you know, getting caught up in the system. We are an incredibly punitive nation. We incarcerate more people and for longer periods of time than in almost any country on this planet, the entire prison industrial complex. All of the corporations, whether they're telecommunications corporations, you know, video visitation corporations, all of the companies that make money off of people behind bars or people who are trapped in the justice system certainly have an incentive to keep prison populations high.
1: Lauren Brooke Eisen is a senior counsel at the Brennan Center's Justice Program at NYU School of Law and author of Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Lauren Brooke, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: College libraries often hold a special place in the hearts and minds of students. It's somewhere you can go if you're cramming for a final. It can be just a spot to take a break from having to work on school, and it can be so intense. But as Alejandro Martinez reports, a new facility at the University of Texas at Austin is aiming to rewrite everything you think about libraries.
9: Most libraries like things to be nice and quiet. That's not the case with the Foundry. And despite all the noise, student Jacob Lehman loves coming here.
6: Here we have a recording studio, and this place is one of the coolest recording studios I've ever seen.
9: So what is this noisy artistic space? The Foundry is UT's first all-inclusive makerspace library. And regardless of major or time on campus, any student can go to the Foundry and use the audio recording studio... Mm -hmm the sewing machines, 3D printers, and laser cutters.
6: Oh, I think the coolest thing I've done is uh, the handle for a sword. I 3D modeled it all to look like the bones of, like, a spine or something like that.
9: He made the sword for his mother. They're both big Game of Thrones fans. But he also uses 3D printers for his schoolwork. And that's where the Foundry's mission comes in. It's not just to meet the new technological needs of students, but to boost creativity inside and out of the classroom. Boris Brodsky is the Arts and Creative Technology Director of the Foundry. He says libraries are evolving from places where people simply go to gather information to ones where knowledge is partnered with tools that allow and boost creativity.
1: I mean, all these types of technologies are becoming more and more necessary for people to be learn how to use. And I mean, the purpose of a library has always been to help people create knowledge.
9: For a student layman, that means taking his love for 90s cartoons and using one of the foundry's sewing machines to refashion his work apron.
6: I went to the embroidery machine and I put on a bunch of embroidered um, kind of like logos, but they're just characters from my favorite 90s cartoons. Um, so I've got Gur
1: from Invader Zim, Courage the Cowardly Dog, uh, Samurai Jack.
9: Layman says the Foundry uh, is Johnny a place Bravo. where students can feel free to create whatever they want. And creative director Brodsky says even in its first year, it's generated enormous excitement around campus.
1: When someone comes in who's never used any of this equipment, and then you start seeing them printing an object and holding it in their hands afterwards and realizing that they made it.
9: In fact, student demand has been so overwhelming, it's recently expanded hours to include weekends in an effort to accommodate as many students as possible. Alejandra Martinez, KUT News.
1: Film has long been a staple of the Austin arts scene. I remember as a teenager watching Dazed and Confused over and over and over again. I wasn't even living here. I was in Canada, but I just love that movie. And then Slacker. And this city, I mean, not just Richard Linklater movies, it's been the setting for many movies and TV shows. And every spring, box office hits and award hopefuls premiere at South by Southwest. Now, to ensure that this film scene continues here. The Austin Film Society is training new filmmakers at local schools. KUT's Claire McInerney reports on how students learn about filmmaking and contribute to our city's film culture.
10: It's the time of year when indie filmmakers are showcasing their work to build industry buzz. Sundance is underway in Park City, Utah. Austin is preparing to welcome hundreds of filmmakers for South by Southwest in March. And at Hart Elementary in Northeast Austin, the next generation of filmmakers are honing their skills.
2: Right, film club. Can we see a quiet, straight line right here?
10: Taylor Barron is an Austin-based filmmaker. She's leading an after-school film club, film club at Hart twice a week, Baron comes to Hart to teach the kids various film techniques. It's one of 11 schools in the city hosting the clubs, which are organized by the Austin Film Society. The energetic group settles into a classroom. Baron reveals today's lesson.
11: And today we're going to be learning Today we're going to be learning about sound design.
10: She starts with film scores and explains to the group of third and fourth graders how music can help set the tone for a scene. She plays the kids some famous film scores, most of which they don't know. She asks them how the music makes them feel. A third grader raises her hand. So
11: Aubrey, what kind of film do you think this song is in? It'll be in a
0: scary movie when something is trying to bite something.
10: Seriously, she's never seen Jaws. Then comes the hands-on activity. This is what makes Film Club at Heart one of the most popular after-school programs. Barron shows the kids a silent video she made of herself doing things around her kitchen.
11: So I recorded this for you guys last night because I wanted to have a good, simple video for you guys to record sound to it, right? In the video, she walks
10: into the kitchen, pours some cat food, sneezes, opens the back door, and turns the pages of a book. The kids each recreate one of the sounds to later play over the silent video. There's the tissue. I can't beat that cat! That girl eats some pretzels to make the sound of the cat eating. Someone pretends to sneeze. I
9: want a big sneezer!
10: They run through their sounds while the silent video plays on a projector. Throughout the semester, the kids build on lessons like these, until finally, they make their own short film. One of the films this class created last semester was written and directed by one student.
0: Hi, I'm Aubrey and I am in third grade.
10: Aubrey Macedo says the hardest part about being a director was...
0: I had to make sure everybody was in place. It was hard work because a lot of the kids weren't doing the roles, so it was hard. <laughs>
10: Aubrey's film was different than most of the others created in this program. Rather than a zombie or alien invasion, she said she wanted to write something relevant.
0: Um, I wanted to make something serious because what's happening in the world right now. So um, I decided immigration.
10: Her four-minute film follows the journey of a family immigrating to the U.S. from Mexico illegally. The family travels to Texas for more opportunities and arrives at a friend's house. Soon after, immigration and customs enforcement agents arrive at the door.
2: Hello ma'am.
9: We have we have a reported um, illegal actions in this area.
0: Illegal.
9: Um yeah, immigration. Uh, can we see your ID or can can we see your IDs and your papers? Sir. Yeah.
10: The family doesn't have papers, but one of the agents recognizes the mom as someone he's met before. He remembers she was kind to him, and he decides to let the family stay.
9: These are the the right people to be in America. We should let them go.
10: Aubrey said this story stemmed from something personal. A friend of hers was recently deported. I asked her why she chose to write a hopeful ending for the film.
0: Um, I want to end with a happy a happy ending because my f- my friend always um writes to me.
10: Instructor Taylor Barron said when the students brought her this script, she recognized how filmmaking can provide a necessary outlet for kids,
11: so they're having to think about this in different ways. And I think that that filmmaking and having them, you know, create their own stories about this is like a really great way for them to deal with that.
10: The AFS program is available at schools in Austin with a majority of low-income students. Aubrey's immigration film is an example of what they want to see more of, kids telling their own stories through film. To prove to the kids their work is important, AFS hosts a screening of all the student films at its theater.
5: Welcome everybody to
8: our Winter Film Festival. For an
10: hour, the kids and their parents watch films about Pokemon and zombies. There's a lot of slapstick comedy, two evil clowns, and a pretty impressive UFO special effect. There's a lot of laughter, but during Aubrey's film, it's quiet.
9: Why do we need to move in Texas? Why? What about my own
2: friends? I got new ones.
10: At a time when the film industry is facing criticism for a lack of diversity in filmmakers and stories, AFS says this program aims at bringing those voices into the process early on. Claire McInerney, KUT News.
1: That is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of February 2018. Thank you for listening. This commercial free podcast is brought to you by people who support local nonprofit journalism at KUT. Thank you if you're one of those people. And if you're not, you can join them by going to kut.org and clicking on donate. Subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to email me questions or comments, Nathan at KUT.org is my email address, or you can ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thank you so much for checking this out. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. I said it, Pumat. I